Hello everyone, it's July 20th, 2021. Well, Hubble is back online and doing its thing. We're going to talk about what went wrong, how it was fixed, and what this latest issue might mean for the beloved space telescope's future. Hang in there, Hubble. One orbit at a time. That's how you do it. And lift off. Of the tower. Welcome to episode 317 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Still no Blue Origin launch, but we know who that mysterious fourth passenger was. Uh, that's kind of news. I guess we'll be talking about it more next week because uh, the launch will happen on the day that this show goes out. Technically, we still don't know who the fourth person was who bid the ton of money, but we True. do know now who the, who who the, the fourth passenger <laughs> will yeah. be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, there was, what was it? Like somebody, the, the fourth passenger stepped back because they had a schedule conflict or something. Mm-hmm. I read some like probably slightly paranoid speculation that was talking about like who would have had to step back or they came up with a name and then said they stepped back for this, but I don't think it was any of it was like actually backed up by (laughs) data. What's interesting about this flight now is that the new fourth passenger will be the youngest person to go to space, and this same flight will also have the oldest person, who will be Wally Funk. So that's uh, two precedents for the president. Yeah, I'm here for Wally getting the fly. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That is great. Yeah, That was the one time where I read news about the flight that, you know, was completely not technical. I went, oh, cool. (laughs) Because, like, that's the thing. is like, (laughs) I I love the the technical stuff. Like, yeah, let's, let's watch this thing fly. Let's, you know, figure out learn about what they're doing but while i get into fly yeah i'm i'm here for it that's that's cool people stuff mike says uh youngest oldest and richest <laughs> three, you know what that's true three for the price of one okay bezos is uh younger brothers just not really helping or contributing <laughs> to anything <laughs> have 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 sibling siblings ever flown to space before um, on the same mission that's a good question because you got the kellys but they were never together no, i don't think uh, i don't i don't think they ever were then you might have something there. So the brother contributes as well. First, uh, space-faring siblings. Hubble is back online. Yeah, this has been, what, a month now, maybe, roughly? Yeah, about worryingly long time. It was getting kind of scary there, but they fixed the problem. Yeah, don't don't celebrate too much because it's not a great fix. Um, well, okay, so so let me let me start by talking about the symptoms. Basically, they started seeing um, read write errors um, coming from the the payload computer, um, and then they asked the computer to go uh, put the uh, scientific payloads into safe mode and it said nothing doing so they said okay shut down it shut down when they powered it back up they were able to go into safe mode um, but like that's that's not that's not great so the computer that we're talking about um, th- there are two computers on board I guess it might depend on how you define computer, but from the way that NASA defines it, they, they say that there are two computers. Um, one is NSSC-1, the NASA standard spacecraft computer. Um, it was actually replaced in 2009. Well, it, it itself wasn't replaced individually. It was replaced when um, STS-125 replaced the entire SICNDH. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about that later, but it, it was replaced in 2009 and it failed previously. It failed in much the same way that it failed now. So, um, that, that's kind of the, the, the bad news here. When they replaced, um, the original SIC and DH, 
um, they didn't build a new unit with new technology. Instead, they recertified a spare that had been built during the initial construction of Hubble um, and, and flew that up. The recertification is actually a little bit of a fun uh, thing to look into because um, while it was, you know, safe and in storage, it had been disassembled somewhat as they were testing other things on the spacecraft and they, oh yeah, we got a spare. We can go grab that and test it. And so it had been disassembled a little bit. And then it turns out that they never did uh flight certification for it when they initially built it. So they had to do all of that work and that wound up delaying SDS-125. Originally 125 was built, the, the actual mission was built without doing a replacement for the uh, SIC and DH. Just for my clarification, so this SIC and DH, which is a very uh, clunky acronym. If I could just yeah, say. we'll get we'll get to the uh, actual. <laughs> the actual okay. but but that's okay. oh okay because I was gonna say that's that's kind of like what like a like a platform that all like the yes. computer memory all, right, all the stuff is thrown. Yeah, it's got a it's got a lot of components on it. So that's uh, NSSC one. The other computer is DF two twenty four. That's the flight computer. Uh, that guy was replaced in nineteen ninety nine. And it was actually upgraded. They gave it a bunch of additional memory and processor power. And and they, they kind of did that quote-unquote right. You have something fail, it seems... I don't know. You, you, we have things fail and we go and replace it with, you know, the exact same component uh, often enough that it, it's only a bad idea when we have uh, aftersight available to us, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. So, so those were the symptoms. Um, they did a lot of work to figure out what the error source was. Um, they knew that, like, the, the first target was the uh, SIC and DH. That stands for Science Instrument Command and Data Handling Unit. And, and like, that, that was where the errors were coming from. So they knew it was somewhere in there. And then they had to drill down a bit farther to figure out what component in this giant rack uh, was uh, was at issue. Because like you said, Dennis, this is a lot of different things altogether. So the uh, Science Instrument Command and Data Handling Unit has uh, two standard interface boards for the NSSC. And I, I believe there's two, yeah, there are two NSSCs. The um, the SIC and DH, the whole unit, the whole rack uh, is split into sides A and B. And so there's replication uh, on both sides. So um, there are two uh, interface boards. There are two um, control units. Uh, they're called control unit slash data science formatters. So that's uh, CU slash S, uh, SDF. Um, the CUSDF side A is what failed in 2008, and the reason they decided to replace the entire SIC and DH, um, they had an extra um, CUSDF on side B, but they wanted to uh, restore their redundancy. Turns out it was a good idea because uh, <laughs> we needed it now when this failure happened. Uh, there are two CPUs. Um, there is only one power control unit, as far as I can tell. Um, and the, the PCU, I, I believe, has uh, double or has single redundancy inside of it, but it's all inside the same box. Uh, I tried to answer this question. I wasn't able to uh, confirm how much redundancy there is in there. Now, now the uh, PCU is a hefty beast. 
this thing supplies a bunch of different voltages for a bunch of different components inside uh, the SIC and DH uh, tray uh, or, or rack, I guess. Um, just doing quick searches through a couple of quick PDFs, I was able to determine that it supplies plus 5 volt power, minus 5 volt, plus 12 volt. That's all for the computers and the data modules. And then it also supplies plus 28 volts for the CU uh, SDFs, both, both of those guys. And, you know, 28 volts is a, <laughs> it's a lot of voltage. Like, that. that's a huge difference, right? Because voltage is not current. It's the potential difference. So you can think of voltage as like uh, potential energy. Um, so if you raise a bucket up 28 feet in the air, you could say it has 28 volts. It's not, none of that power is moving anywhere. It's all potential energy. Um, but like voltage only makes sense when compared to something else. So 28 feet above the ground for a bucket of water is, uh, you know, is, is kind of what we're talking. So like it, it's got minus five volts and plus 28 volts. Um, I don't know all of the requirements here, but I'm assuming that, you know, there is air gapping, right? Like most, most integrated circuit boards, you have different, uh, voltage levels. The ground plane is usually zero volts. Uh, and then you measure everything off of that and you got 3.3 or five volts or 12 volts. Uh, that's all, you know, buckets raised above that ground level. And, and that's all fine. You know, 12 volts, yeah, you need some separation between your traces. But if you're running, you know, a 3.3 or five volt, uh, logic board, you can just run traces next to each other and not even worry about it. They're not really going to interfere with each other as long as they're not high frequency. But, uh, to have 28 volts, I think that's getting to the point where you have cutouts on the board to make sure that there's an air gap between your low voltage and high voltage, uh, circuitry. Okay, so that, that, that's the PCU. Um, then there are two remote interface units. Um, I wrote, uh, 2X remote interface unit. And then for the next one, I wrote NX because there are a multitudinous number of memory modules, data modules, and communication buses. I didn't even try to count them. I just went, eh, there's a bunch <laughs> of them. Uh, and then there is, uh, the NSSC. Um, inside of that, there's a CPU. There are eight memory modules. Um, each have, uh, 18-bit words that they store and they can store just over 8,000 uh, 18-bit words. And the NSSC runs an embedded software program um, to actually do all of the the executive functions uh, of the vehicle. Okay, so that's all the that's all the components that are crammed inside of the SIC and DH, the Science Instrument Command and Data Handling Unit. We knew that one of those things was causing an issue. At first, the PCU was suspected um, because what they were seeing were error codes related to voltage. So that means that either the voltage is actually at a range, the PCU isn't supplying the expected voltage or the required voltage, or it means that a current or a voltage sensor um, somewhere was malfunctioning and reporting uh, incorrect uh, levels uh, of, of power. 
I don't know if we ever decided which one of those two things it was. It's it's not super clear. We haven't gotten good uh, good documentation out of this fix as far as I was able to find. So um, what they ended up doing was just swapping to the B side. Um, so the SIC and DH has got the A and the B. So they tell all the B side components, hey, wake up. Uh, hey, here's the current software version. Um, then they went into the... Um, PCU and said, okay, swap over power, stop supplying power to the A side, start supplying power to the B side. I guess that happened first, actually. Um, and then they uh, reconfigured a bunch of components in the data management systems um, so that, you know, the new string can talk to uh, everything else. And people were referencing a backup payload computer. I'm not 100% sure what that's in reference to. Maybe it's the CU, uh, CUSDF, the, um, oh, the control, control unit, control unit science data formatter. Yeah. And, and like, I, I know that they swapped to a new CUSDF because there's one on each side. And if they swapped over to side B, that, that just makes sense. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's my assumption is, is what people were referring to as a, a backup payload computer. So I, I guess the question is like, where do we stand now? And I, I don't really know. Um, I don't think that there's too much, um, in individual hot swapping that they can do. Um, if a, a different component on the B side fails that didn't fail on the A side, maybe they can, um, swap back to the A side for that one component. Uh, it doesn't seem super likely. I, I think they're probably fairly individually contained. Uh, units, but I, I could totally be wrong. Um, in the show notes, we're going to have a ton of information. There is a Scott Manley video talking about the issue before the fix came up. I've got two different PDFs um, talking about NASA systems. One of them uh, predates um, STS-125 uh, when they replaced uh, the SIC and DH. So it, it doesn't talk about uh, the state of the vehicle as it existed before this issue, um, but it still has a lot of really good reference material if you want to know more about uh, what each of these things do and how they're interconnected. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't, as many resources as I have in the show notes, I don't see a lot of speculation as to where we go from here. Um, Dennis, when we were chatting before the show, you said, you know, you were given it 50, 50 odds that it was going to come back at all. And, and I heartily <laughs> agree with that. Uh, it really seemed pretty, uh, pretty dire. Does the next failure, if, if the next failure happens in the SIC and DH, I've got a feeling it, that's it for Hubble. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if, if we can recover from that. We're, we're starting to run low on backups. I mean, you know, we were really expecting one of the gyros to go next and, and it, you know, they were beat out by a computer. So it doesn't seem like Hubble is that long for, for this world. And that, that really sucks. I mean, Hubble is a piece of history, even if it's not the best, uh, you know, science instrument that we have right now. Um, it's emotionally valuable, if nothing else. It's still a hugely oversubscribed workhorse. <laughs> as sure. Far as, sure. As far as just, just being above the atmosphere is just such a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, we, we live in a world where, you know, I don't want to say that these things should be disposable, but we live in a world where there should be many Hubbles. There, there's no yeah. reason to have people scrabbling as hard as they are for 
uh, access to data. It just, it's, it's kind of silly. Um, so that this shouldn't be as emotional of an issue as it is. You know, we shouldn't be this attached to such an old telescope, but we are. Well, it was kind of the first of its kind, really, you know? I yeah. Mean, so I think that's, yeah, a for lot of real. It. But, you know, if, if Hubble went up with five or six, uh, brothers and sisters, it, it wouldn't be that big of a deal if the first one was going down. Mm hmm. Well, there will be more in the future, and it probably won't be as big of a deal because there will be just, you know, that many more resources. But for right now, you know, and because yeah. of the fact that there is, this, you know, a sentimental attachment that we have to it because it was the first telescope to, like, you know, actually give us the images that we take for granted now. Yeah, the Hubble Deep Field and yeah. the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. I mean, yeah. they, they still come up pretty consistently in, you know, the, the fringes of, uh, of space nerdery. Like people <laughs> can, they're, they're well known enough that people can stumble across them, but obscure enough that people don't get educated about them in their basic, uh, you know, school science classes. And so like, well, I mean, sometimes not always like obviously, but like, you know, it's still something that you can discover and, and people discover them and pop up on Reddit to ask questions, pop up on Twitter to ask questions. And, and it's just, it's astounding to, you know, when people can find these things and go, Oh, okay. The universe is much bigger than I thought. <laughs> and, and that's really cool. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the deep field is, is such such an iconic, uh, such an iconic image. Pillars of Creation is the first one I think of. Oh yeah, oh, yeah for yeah. real. Yeah, it's a good one. Absolutely. I mean, the the Pillars of Creation, you know, is on water bottles and T-shirts. You mm -hmm. know, it's just <laughs> it's emblematic. It's not even iconic. It's emblematic. Um, so Hubble was originally planned to be deorbited. Um, that's why they installed the grapple fixture because they they weren't. I think when Hubble was first launched, they wanted to be able to land it on shuttle. And as shuttle uh, matured, it, it wasn't for one reason or another. It just didn't uh, make too much sense to bring it back down on shuttle. Um, and so they can, you know, deorbit it on its own. But we don't have a shuttle to deorbit it anymore. I wonder if they're going to even try to deorbit it, if they're just going to leave it up there. Well, we've talked about this a lot. Yeah. Um that's a really good question. I hope. So what happens in the scenario where it breaks or like, let's say that like one of the gyros breaks, right? And it can't be deorbited immediately. I mean, it could go into a spin. I mean, not like a, like, you know, a very yeah. bad one, but like one that might be just unmanageable. And so, you know, trying to wrangle that horse <laughs> might be. <laughs> well, speaking of which, did you hear about that Malaysian satellite? In Geo, uh, nope. It's it's tumbling now, and some people are worried about that, meaning that it might start drifting in longitude and messing with other geo satellites. And so, yeah, this is a, a Malaysian one that just happened. How long has so that been going on? Sat three uh, since July sixteenth. Well, at least July sixteenth is when Space News reported on it. Yeah. So at this point, they've deactivated all of its transponders because yeah, tumble is is no good. I'd hate to be the the, the next slot over, you know, <laughs> the company yeah. is the next slot. <laughs> like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tumbling, but if they still have communication with it and control over it, I don't think it's in any danger of tumbling fast enough to start spinning off parts. But I mean, it's it's certainly something that could happen if it if it gets hit. You know that. That's how these chains start. And the, the real bummer is that it doesn't have attitude control, so we can't fly something up there to, uh, to pull it out of its orbit. Mm. I mean, heck, we, we have uh, assets in geostationary orbit right now that could potentially do that. Like, how crazy is that? Uh, <laughs> uh, Stye in the chat says, ramming speed, no thank you. <laughs> 
Well, that's that's Hubble and various other bits of uh, orbital debris. Uh, Godspeed, Hubble. We wish you luck. Uh, we love you. Uh, you've done good work. You're continuing to do good work. Just hang in there for a little bit longer. So this week we're doing four short and sweets. So four of them, and Dennis will do the first one. First up, Astranus produces new batch of very small geo satellites. The San Francisco-based company Astranus has begun building four small geostationary satellites, each of which weighs about 400 kilograms. While not the first small geosatellite the company has built, that distinction goes to their Arcturus satellite, which will launch next year on Falcon 9 and provide internet service across Alaska. The recent batch signals a ramp-up of Astranus's production rate. Three of the four satellites have already secured a customer with competitive bidding for the fourth in progress. Next, uh, funding has been secured for the Bearsheet 2 mission. After securing $70 million in recent pledges, Israel's Space IL has raised almost all of its $100 million needed to fund its second attempt at landing on the moon. In 2019, the original Bearsheet suffered a string of malfunctions on orbit, culminating in a crash on the lunar surface and falling short of being the first privately funded moon lander. Bearsheet 2, targeting launch in 2024, will consist of an orbiter as well as a pair of lightweight 60-kilogram landers and the mission will include only the second landing on the far side of the moon after China's Chang'e 4. Next up, Raptor engine development is ramping up. So Elon Musk confirmed via Twitter that SpaceX will be breaking ground on a new Raptor engine production facility in Boca Chica, Texas. This new facility will focus on the Raptor 2 sea level engines, while its California factory will focus on vacuum Raptors and new experimental designs. The additional facility is necessary if Starship is to transport enough personnel and hardware to create a self-sustainable city on Mars within 10 years. Musk also confirmed that the Super Heavy booster will utilize 33 Raptors, the outer 20 of which will only differ in that they will not have gimbal or thrust vector actuators. And fourthly, ESA announces new kick stage for Ariane 6 rocket. Development of Astris, an optional add-on stage for the Ariane 6, has begun with a 90 million euro contract with Ariane Group. Interfacing directly with the payload, Asterisk will enable new orbital transfers for the launch vehicle and may simplify some payloads by taking over for their propulsion. It also will extend the Ariane 6's capability to deploy multiple payloads on a single launch. Powered by a Berta engine that is currently in development in Germany, the kick stage will have the ability to restart multiple times. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have a, I guess, a comment from Andrew who yeah. uh, emails us often and always shares interesting information. So we have a really cool mm-hmm. infographic that you wanted to share with us. Yeah, yeah. So this is from the Twitter account R H Jao R H Z H A O, and they put together a nice little Kerbal-looking infographic that shows uh Almost all of the liquid fuel orbital class launch vehicles being developed in the Chinese private sector. So there's like land space, ice space, um, rocket pie, um, which is like such a great, uh, company name. Um, but like it's a, it's a great little infographic because it has, um, like stats, like it's, um, it's cargo capabilities, uh, the size of the fairings and, uh, the types of engines and their, de- uh, development state. It's it's a great little infographic, um, so I thought it would be a good thing to to share. So link in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. By the way, for all of your emails, I don't reply to all of them, 
There are definitely a good couple that slip past me because I get the email while I'm doing something else and forget to go back and read it, but it, it is much appreciated. So yeah, let's move on then to this week in spaceflight history. And we have some winners. We have Ben Hallert, Neo Force, and the Greek, and they all get bonus points. So they answered the question and they understood the nature of the clue, uh, which which I didn't. It. Yeah. <laughs> what was that clue again? Uh, where where do pirates go to drink an R bar? Yeah, a good pun. <laughs> I will be saying the words R bar uh, throughout this, and uh, it's going to be real hard not to pronounce it like a pirate every single time. <laughs> okay, this week in spaceflight history is the 22nd of July, 1962. It was the failed launch of Mariner 1 due to a software typo um mm. isaac asimov called it the most expensive hyphen in the history of uh human uh space flight or that in the history of humanity something like that so how do you get to a software typo bringing down uh an interplanetary probe yeah there, there's some history behind this we we were really pushing hard so uh for reference uh venus is in its optimal uh home and transfer window every 19 months there was a window in 1957, um, which is technically within the space race era, um, but neither the U.S. nor the USSR uh, were uh, anywhere near ready uh, to hit uh, 1957. So both of them wanted to be able to fly in 1959, the, that, that next window. As far as I know, the USSR didn't do, I don't know, they could have had some really major plans that, that didn't fly Nobody flew. All I know is that the U.S. did have plans. They were really trying to do this. Um, like the state of technology was just barely advanced enough that we could have done it. Um, but we, uh, we did, we ended up not even being able to try. So the U.S. was trying to, uh, do two pioneer missions. Um, one was going to launch on Thor Able. The other one was going to fly on Atlas Able. Thor Abel has, you know, a long history. Atlas Abel may sound a little funny. Uh, no Atlas Abel's ever flew. Um, if this would have flown, I, I would really like to say that it would have been the first and only Atlas Abel flight. Uh, it's, it's tough to say because Atlas Abel tried to fly twice more and both of them wound up exploding on a test stand. So like, uh, would Atlas Abel have been able to uh, fly then? Probably not. If we couldn't have done, <laughs> couldn't do it later. Um, both of those explosions were an Atlas B and an Able upper stage. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think it was an Atlas B. And later on, we tried, we, we had more success flying Atlas C, but I don't believe that Atlas C ever flew, um, with an Able upper stage. No, it must, it must have been Atlas C that exploded and then Atlas D that we used because that Atlas D did a lot more, right? Anyway. Uh, don't at me. I don't care. Um, one, uh, <laughs> one of these two pioneers, uh, was then turned into pioneer five, um, and flew successfully. The other one, uh, was used in the pioneer Atlas, uh, missions and was going to fly on the second Atlas able that exploded. Um, but, but didn't. Luckily, it wasn't destroyed in the, in the pad test. So it was then turned into Pioneer P3 and destroyed during its launch. So, but Pioneer 5 did just fine, right? Um, so there we go. That's, that's the 1957 window that we also missed. The 1962 window, like at this point, NASA's like, no, we're going to Venus. We gotta go. 
Um, so they turned to JPL and signed a contract to build Mariner A. Mariner A would have flown on an Atlas Centaur, but by the following year, it was abundantly clear Centaur wasn't going to be uh, flying fast enough to hit the window. And like, obviously, Centaur then went on to be a, a fantastic family of upper stages, but it, it wasn't ready then. So even though JPL was a year into their work on Mariner A, well, I guess not despite the fact, but actually because of that fact, uh, they had, you know, a year's worth of development in a Mariner A. So they decided to, um, pivot on a dime and merge Mariner A with a block one Ranger vehicle. Um, Ranger was much lower mass. Um, and so they were able to build Mariner R which is like a lightweight version of the Mariner. And it was lightweight enough that it could fly on Atlas Agena, which we know to be, you know, fairly reliable. Two of these Mariner R's were built to, f were, were constructed for flight. One was constructed as a backup. So, uh, the happy story I'm going to tell first, Mariner 2 launched successfully in August 1962 and did a flyby of Venus. Here's the sad story. Uh, mm -hmm. Before that happened, Mariner mm -hmm. 1, uh, done blowed up. And, uh, August 1962 is when Mariner 2 flew. Uh, July 1962 is when Mariner 1 flew. So like, this really was, was a quick, you know, they're trying to hit the same launch window. It makes sense. But like, you know, you got a, you got an explosion and then a successful mission immediately afterwards. And to be honest, this is why they built two of the suckers, right? To be able to handle unplanned, uh, catastrophic disassemblies. And that is kind of like broadly the history of the Mariner program. I sure. feel like it was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fa failure, success, failure, success. They kept bouncing back and forth a lot. <laughs> so this failure is, uh, really enjoyable and satisfying. Um, but as we're going through this, remember NASA was moving very fast because they had already missed, um, one launch window that they were really trying, they were intending to hit. Um, and, uh, and, and they were slow, quickly running out of room. Like the, the, th this third launch window of the space era, um, was slipping away quickly. So they're just pushing, pushing, pushing. So just, just keep that in mind. Give them a little bit of slack. So, uh, Atlas lifts off of the pad and is doing great. Um, and then, uh, at some point during the flight, they, uh, lost the guidance lock from the, the radar on the ground. And that's, you know, fairly normal. Uh, they work for a little bit. They're able to reestablish the lock. Great. Seems cool. Unfortunately, right after the lock was lost, the vehicle started drifting roughly to the Northeast. That seems okay. The thing's flying on internal guidance. It's not going to be as good. That's why we have ground systems. But once they reestablish a uh, lock from the ground uh, and start sending um, new guidance that's computed on the ground, right? Because that, that's how they did it back then. Um, once they start sending it new commands from the ground, it still keeps drifting. Uh, they're, they're not able to correct this drift. And the, the drift continued um, up until six seconds before Agena separated. Um, Agena probably would have separated just fine and maybe even made it to orbit just fine. Unfortunately, the drift was putting uh, the vehicle dangerously close to, uh, to areas of the planet where people are. And so they decided to terminate it. And yeah, they waited till the very last six seconds <laughs> to terminate this thing. And, uh, and they, uh, they, they done bloated up. So th this, this issue 
it's famous. I'm actually kind of surprised that we only had um, three people uh, write in to guess. I, I guess I, I, I'm just going to take the credit. It was a fantastic clue. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, oh, go on. You know, stop clapping. Let's let's get going. But th- like this is this is a famous failure. Um, and um, people talk about it as a missing hyphen. It's not actually a hyphen, but it you know it's good enough uh, to explain the issue. So. They, the way that they wrote this guidance software was basically like they would write it out by hand, more or less, um, and then hand it over to be compiled, like transposed or, uh, um, uh, transcribed onto punch cards and then, and then compiled and installed in the vehicle. That the issue happened somewhere along there. The story is that somebody dropped uh, a hyphen um, before handing it off uh, to get punch carded. Honestly, that seems like the most likely place for the error to have happened rather than for the error to have happened in the hands of the people actually creating the punch cards. Um, like they, their work was so monotonous and exacting that I, I tend to think that they did their job more or less perfectly. <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't think that that's where the issue is likely to have happened, but who knows? So it all comes down to the way that they wrote out their variables. R is for radius. Um, I'm assuming this is the radius above the Earth's center, right? So a, a shorthand for altitude. R means radius. R bar is R with a line over top of it. And the bar is there to indicate that the 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 radius value should go through a smoothing algorithm. I don't know exactly how this worked, but I imagine that they just had a routine uh, written somewhere that could do this smoothing. Um, and so doing R bar says first hand those values to the smoothing algorithm. And instead of grabbing the original values, grab the result of that, of that smoothing algorithm. R dot bar is uh, the, it includes a, a time derivative. I, I I expect that the smoothing algorithm always did time derivatives. I mean, that, that just makes sense to me, but you know, it's not even just R bar that was, that was screwed up. It was R dot bar sub N. Uh, the sub N means to grab a particular nth value, um, out of this stream. So, uh, I wonder if they were doing multiple derivatives and you could select how deep into that derivative stack you wanted to go. I'm not sure. But all this comes down to the bar was dropped. Maybe, uh, you know, that person's pencil was running out of lead. Um, maybe their typewriter, um, you know, had, had a little bit of a faint bar. Uh, and so when they went to go type a bar on top of the R, it, you know, wasn't very dark. Uh, maybe they just forgot altogether that they needed to draw a bar, but you can understand uh, how big of a deal this can be. Instead of getting an unsmoothed value getting fed into your guidance software, now you have an instantaneous value. Um, and not good. And, and things get a little worse from there. Not not too much worse, but uh, like th- that would be enough to, to kill the mission, I'm assuming. But... Um, not only were they grabbing the instantaneous values, um, but when the ground receiver, this onboard algorithm uh, kicked into gear when they lost uh, acquisition from the ground. What made it worse was when the um, ground uh, radar facility is trying to reacquire the vehicle, um, they used uh, sweep frequency. Basically, is it here? Is it there? Is it over here? Where is it? 
looking for the vehicle. And as they're doing that, some of these pings as they're sweeping across the vehicle were picked up by, uh, by the vehicle, but they're not solid. It's not a solid lock. So if you're using that as altitude data or positional data, it's not going to give you it's not going to give you a good result. Normally this wouldn't have been an issue because of the smoothing. Um, it would just kind of get integrated and the, the onboard accelerometers or whatever would have, um, provided enough good data that those, um, those sweeps wouldn't have been a big deal, but they, they weren't, uh, they, uh, really induced additional error. Um, so while, the vehicle was um, running on an internal guidance. It's doing fairly dramatic course corrections because it's seeing, oh crap, I'm 10 feet to the left. Oh no, I'm, you know, 50 feet to the right. Go back yeah. and forth, back and forth. Let's get on the right track. Um, and then once they uh, reacquired the lock, the onboard uh, data needs to be, you know, integrated into um, the new, more accurate data from the ground. But there's already bad knowledge and the bad knowledge was propagated through the ground systems basically. Mm. And so, um, or, or imposed on top of the good data from the ground systems. And it, it just all kind of went to hell. I, I don't know how far off track the vehicle got. It, it didn't pop up and I didn't really go snooping for it. Um, it would be really interesting to see how recoverable this would have been if it wasn't for the shipping lane that they were about to overfly. Uh, but yeah, there you go. They, they wound up, uh, with, with one, one hyphen, one bar resulting in just, a, a an unsuited, uh, algorithm to, to control a rocket. That's interesting. So it's like, I mean, this, you know, it can get pretty complicated, but I would kind of like to know more about the algorithm and exactly how it does what it does. Um, because it's, you know, a, it's a pretty interesting problem to happen, mm-hmm. you know, to have happen. Yeah. I always want to know more about algorithms, but like in this case, like, you know, if you're, if your data is not smoothed, you're going to get little tiny, uh, inaccuracies it can be it can be precise data but it uh, or it, it can be accurate data but if it's imprecise you know your your error bars are too wide and if you pay attention to every mm-hmm. single uh bit of data that's somewhere inside those error bars but not yeah. exactly where you want it just it doesn't make sense it's kind of a good thing to know um and it kind of gives you an you know like an appreciation of how guidance computers work and especially back then i don't know this just all gets very complicated and i don't pretend to understand it but um it's still pretty it gives cool. you a good flavor like if you can understand yeah, one right. little thing it kind of gives you an idea it mm-hmm. makes everything else a little more accessible or at least imaginable. Yeah. yeah. I don't get the pirate reference except for, yeah, the R bar. I thought that there was, you know, I mean, not that I thought that there was <laughs> going to be pirates in- involved in this. That would just be too cool. But but um, I'm glad that somebody got the clue. Yeah. I mean, you know, data stealing, maybe we could work maybe, something yeah. in there. But yeah, no, I, the, the clue was R bar. I just needed to throw you <laughs> off. You know? R bar. Yeah. Okay, so uh, July 22nd, 1962, the failed launch of Mariner 1 is your This Week in Spaceflight History. Okay, so next week, uh, the date range you have is the 27th of July through the 2nd of August. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1985, 
Spain's beautiful this time of year, but we ain't going there today. We'll see how that does. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think I know, but um, okay. I think I have an idea. If anyone out there thinks that they know what this is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch, but a couple of other things that will be very much worth watching. So the first one will be a Crew Dragon event. Yeah, there's some stuff happening in space. <laughs> yeah. So that event is on uh, the 21st of July, and uh, it's coverage, uh, or, and it's the relocation of of uh, the Crew 2, Crew Dragon. And so this is going to be uh, Shane Kimbrough, uh, Meg MacArthur, Aki Hoshide, and Thomas Piske. And they will be, uh, you'll see coverage starting at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and they will be taking uh, the Crew 2, Crew Dragon from the forward port, port of Harmony to the Zenith Port of Harmony. So doing a little uh, relocation there. And so the uh, coverage is at 6.30 a.m. with the undocking scheduled at 6.45 and redocking scheduled at 7.32 a.m. All Eastern Time, obviously. All Eastern Time, yeah. <laughs> Next up, just a reminder, uh, we still have the Proton-M launch of Nauka, which we had mentioned last week, but we're just going to mention it again. So that'll be on Wednesday, July 21st, which is the day after this episode comes out. So that's launching at 14 58 UTC, 10 a.m. on the East Coast, I think, or thereabouts. But yeah, that's launching from uh, the Baikonur Cosmodrome. So yeah, just keep an eye out for that once again. And let's hope that it's not delayed and uh, we get to watch this on Wednesday morning. I'm very much mm -hmm. looking forward to it. And if it does launch Wednesday, it'll be docking next Thursday, the 29th. Yeah, because mm. that long phasing period, apparently. <laughs> yeah, no rush. Okay, and then after that, um, we have kind of a cool thing coming up on NASA TV. So this is a virtual media briefing. Um, it is going to be covering um, the early science from Perseverance, as well as preparations for the first uh, sample capture, which is like incredible. Uh, first step on a very long train to actually getting our first sample of Mars back here on Earth. Um, the participants are going to include uh, five different people. Um, I guess top billing goes to Thomas Zuberkin, um, but then also the project manager, the Perseverance Enhanced Navigation Team lead, um, a project scientist, and a science campaign co-lead are all going to be there. It's, it's going to be pretty cool. I need to put it on my calendar because I want to watch this. These, these briefings are pretty cool. And I, you know, it'll be on, uh, NASA TV's, uh, YouTube page, uh, archived if you miss it. Um, but if you don't want to miss it, then you're going to need to tune in on Wednesday, July 21st, uh, at, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. If you are a media member, uh, you can get questions in, uh, by 11 a.m., which is kind of cool. I, I might try to do that. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I don't, I don't really have a lot of constructive questions to ask, uh, about sample collection. Cause it's like, it's so, it's still kind of theoretical at this point, but maybe I'll, mm -hmm. I'll try to rack my brain. So just once again, that's Wednesday, the 21st at 1 PM Eastern time on NASA TV. And then finally on July 23rd, uh, Friday, uh, we'll be going back up to the station <laughs> coverage of the undocking of the progress 77 cargo craft 
and the pier's docking compartment with it. Will be uh, coverage of that will start at 8:45 a.m. with the undocking scheduled at 9:17 a.m. again Eastern Daylight Time. And so making room for that Nauka mm-hmm. to get there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Well, let's deal with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions, including Mike Collin and Sty slash Chris in the chat with us now and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such show notes, and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links for Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.